on the tee, Jack Nicholas. This is the minute that millions around the world have waited for. We will allow you to enjoy all of this. They are dancing in the pubs of Dublin. Harrington with an ace. And we have a shining star at sunset. Rory continues his run to greatness. The return to glory. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Bogeyman Golf Podcast. Now, it is a bonus podcast for you this week as the Irish Legends Tour is taking place at Seapoint Golf Links this coming week. And it's going to be hosted by Irish golfing legends Dez Smith and Roddy Carr. Both of them have had a very successful professional career. Roddy then getting into management, working with the likes of Seve and other massive, massive names in the game of golf. We sat down with Dez for about 45 minutes or so to talk about how he got into golf. He grew up in this area turning professional, getting his first win, and we really dove deep into his Ryder Cup experience, both as a player and as a vice-captain. It's a Ryder Cup year. We love the Ryder Cup. You can get the sense from Des about how passionate he is about it as well. So we really, really enjoyed that chat. But listen, if you don't have plans next week, we cannot recommend enough. Go checking out the Legends Tour event at Seapoint Golf Links. It's going to be a really, really good event. There are major winners who are going to be in the field, as well as a lot of celebrities for the celebrity pro-am side of it. Now, without any further ado, here's Des Smith. Now, guys, I'm delighted to say that we are joined on the podcast by a legend of Irish golf. Eight wins on the European Tour, two PGA Tour championship wins, five wins on the European Legends Tour. He's played in multiple Ryder Cups. He has been a Ryder Cup assistant captain, vice captain. It is, of course, Des Smith. Des, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to be on the show. Thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. It's a, it's a busy old week you got coming up next week. The Irish Legends Tour event is coming to Seapoint. It's a course that, I mean, you know intimately. How yes. how excited are you now for this event coming up? I know, I'm, you know, it's great to have a, a big tournament back uh, on the east coast of Ireland again. Um, the last time there was anything, well, the Irish Open, that was probably the last time when Shane Lowry won his his great Irish Open as an amateur. Mm. They played the Irish Open at County Loud, which is the course adjoining to Seapoint. So, yes. yeah, and to get such great players and great names coming back will be exciting for the local golfing fraternity. We'll get into the, the week coming uh, shortly, but how did the, the tour first approach you about hosting the event? Because obviously you're hosting it with Roddy Carr. It, yes. Uh, as I mentioned, you, you know the Seapoint uh, very, very well. Who who was it that first got in touch with you about taking on this duty? I think it was Paul McGidley uh, because he had been involved with this tournament for the last two years up in Donegal. And um, then the car group um, are the new owners of Seapoint uh, Golf Club. And they made a decision. Obviously, they'd like to bring it to Seapoint. And uh, so Paul said, look, would you be interested to do everyone a favor and host it? I said, sure. You know, I'm co-hosting with my old friend, Roddy Carr. We go back a very long way. So, no, I was happy to get involved. Yeah, and look, we're really excited. As I said before we hit record, both Michael and myself are going to be on site for the week throughout it. It'll be a really, really good, really, really good tournament. You know, I, I, th- I think so. I mean, it's got all the ingredients. There's um, there's a pro-am on the Wednesday. There's a celebrity. I mean, the, the celebrity players are unbelievable. Uh, I had nothing to do with that. That comes straight through from the from the DP World Tour dash um, Legends Tour. 
the 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 guys from Stayshore have have a lot to do with. They're the main sponsors of the Legends Tour, so they've um, you know had a lot of relationships with a lot of these celebrities. And my goodness, they've really produced amazing names. And that will be on Thursday, and then of course the, the tournament is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Yeah, it'll be super. It'll be really, really good. Um, before we get into that, because I want to pick your brains about the course and about the tournament and about the Legend Store as a whole. Yeah. When you first got into golf, you obviously grew up in the area, not not too far from Seapoint Golf Club. How did you yeah. first get into golf? Uh, well, no, I very simply, um, I, we lived in, in Bettystown, which is just across the Boyne River from where we are. And uh, Leighton and Bettystown Golf Club um, was practically... To half a mile from the center of the village. So everybody, when I was a kid, everybody played golf, tennis, football, and rounders on the beach in the summertime. So that's how I got hooked on golf. Uh, I, I, you know, I started in Leighton and Bettystown. And then as the years went on and I played, got hooked on the game, fell in love with it, I started to devote more and more time and eventually turned pro when I was 20 having played amateur golf and um, international amateur golf for Ireland. So it was kind of a stepping stone each way. So, and then I hit the tour in 1974, and that's when I started my career. It seems like another lifetime ago, but that, that's how it happened. So before we get into the, the professional turn-in pro, because I know that there's, there's a good few stories around that itself, you mentioned your amateur career. What, what, what age were you when you kind of noticed that you were, you know, a very, very good player, probably better than a lot of your mates when you were playing golf? Because... Yeah, you start. Yeah, you're right. You start off and everybody seems to be the same. And But I just got keener and keener. You know, guys were playing more tennis and, and stuff like that. And I would be the one that would be going out practicing my golf. I just fell in love with the game early on. And uh, I, just, I just kept getting better at it. And uh, I suppose... Um, when I got to about uh, 16, I was off scratch. And uh, that sort of told you, uh, you know, uh, something about yourself. Now, back in those days, there wasn't huge money or huge sponsorships, nothing like that. So I just loved playing golf. And then yeah. I played played a lot of amateur golf, scratch cups, uh, started to win a few of those, got on the Irish international team. And um, it kind of went from there. And I had to make a decision having left school. I was 19 when I left school. And um, I was thinking of doing one or two things, but uh, I just said, look, I'll give this a go for, for a year and see how good I can get. And that's what made my mind up. I, I won an awful lot of uh, scratch cups. I financed myself doing that back in the day. And um, yeah, decided to make the bold decision. It was a risk. It is a risk. Even today, it's a big risk. I wouldn't advise any young person to, to go into professional sports, particularly golf, unless you finish your education first. It's very important for, for life. Um, you see a lot of kids along the way falling away with nothing to fall back on. I think it happens in soccer and other sports as well. So you'd always encourage young people, finish your education. It prepares you for life, no matter what you do. Just I think I was talking about risk. I did hear a funny story that like you weren't sponsored to turn pro. You, nope. you, just, you you went into the bank and just said, listen, what can you help me here? What what, yeah. what happened with that? Well, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I used to, um, yeah, I, I gambled a bit on the golf course. That helped to support me. And, um, yeah, I went to the bank and got an overdraft. And my dad uh, went guarantor. Um, thankfully, I never had to call him in. Uh, 
And uh, I, that's how I started. So uh, the pressure was on me to deliver. Uh, so one way or another, I had to deliver uh, finance uh, to to keep the banks off my back, so to speak. And back in 1974, I had an overdraft of 6,000 pounds. That was a lot of money then. So, uh, you know, I was called in on a regular basis by the manager and question, how are you going? And how's the <laughs> Going. So every every program I played in, I put the check in straight away. So you build up credibility like that. But I think also it gave me a sense of responsibility that there were no sponsors around. So I wasn't looking for handouts. I wasn't looking for any help. I knew that everything rested on me. And that was the attitude I've had. I think to this day, I've always had that approach. So how was that first year on tour then? So obviously you have the added stress of you've got the, you've got the bank loan, you got to make that money back. Yeah. How, no, how was that year? It was stressful and I wasn't that good. I thought I was great when I started and then I realized I'm pretty average. <laughs> it was loads of guys and money was very tight. There was no supports like there are today. I mean, I'm involved with Team Golf and Team Ireland and all that. And it's marvelous the supports that... Um, Sport Ireland are given to all sports, not only golf, but it's a great leg up money. There was none of that back then. So you were really working on little bits and pieces. The old saying, scrapings of tin. It felt a bit like that. But it, again, I think it put the pressure on me and players at that stage. Like you realize very quickly, are you good enough? So my first year wasn't very good. My second year wasn't much better. And, you know, you start worrying, but I was playing lots of small events a little bit on tour whenever I could get on. And um, eventually I uh, I got on full time about 1978. So I did four years scratching around, so to speak, uh, trying to make a living. And uh, I think it toughened me up and it made me realize that, you know, this is no cakewalk and there's nothing to fall back on um, because I'd put my eggs in this basket. So uh, that's how it worked. You, you hear quite a lot from particularly the Irish guys playing on the European tour that there's a great camaraderie kind of among country, among countrymen. What yes. was the camaraderie like on tour back when you were playing? So I think there was, a, there was a few guys on there as well. It was good. It was good. But, you you know, I hung out with, with Jimmy Hegarty. He was from Northern Ireland. I hung out with Christy Jr. Lord rest him. He's gone. Eamon Darcy. Guys like that. But the one thing you do realise when you're playing for professional sport you're on your own. Um, they would be happy to meet you in the evening time and have dinner and we talk about our day. And at the end of the day, though, it, we were all individual business people and thousands of guys came and went. And, and sadly, there were lovely people, but it's the old adage, you know, if you can't cut it or if you can't take the heat, you've got to get out of the kitchen. There's no other easy way of putting it. And I often speak to young players uh, and their parents, you know, they come up with stars in their eyes. Everybody wants to be Rory McIlroy. Even I want to be Rory McIlroy. <laughs> <laughs> but there aren't many like him. There's only a few around the world. So I always ask the question, you know, could you make a living at this if you had no sponsor and no support? They look at you with open eyes and have to say, but surely someone's going to help. And this is the thing they have to understand. You're, it's up to you to deliver. So I keep telling them, you've got to get get your game to a pitch where you can break 70 almost every day you go out. 
Otherwise, you're not at the races. And uh, it's to get that message through because there's an awful lot of young people uh, turning pro in different sports. And really, I hate saying it, they haven't got a prayers chance. Um, you have to learn how to win right through your amateur career. And then when you get into the pro game, nowadays it happens a lot quickly because of the development programs. But you have to be ready to win fairly soon. Because mm. it's, all, it's all about going out there and producing a high standard of golf. Yeah, and you speak about the the need to win quickly. Obviously, you mentioned there that you'd you'd four years kind of earning earn your stripes, and then you did get yeah. your your full status in in seventy eight, nineteen seventy nine. Then the next year, your first kind of full year on on tour, you get you get your maiden win. Did that feel like yeah. you got the the monkey off your back? And oh you, yeah, you were there. Yeah, but I knew I knew I was ready though. The the four years in I'm not saying the wilderness, but I was scratching around in those days. Um, it was pre-qualifying, so you go to Mondays and try and get into the tournament. There, there weren't, uh, there weren't challenge tours or qualifying schools or any of that. So you went for your Monday, um, if you weren't exempt, and uh, if you got in, you had your chance of, of making a cut and making, making a few bob that way. But uh, in in seventy eight, yeah, I I knew I was playing well enough, and then I got in on seventy nine and won my first tournament. And I, I'm happy to say I never looked back. The boost in confidence, the win, just you felt seven foot tall and off you went. And did you did you feel any different going into that week? Like, was it a case of just it was your week and, and it, things went right for you? Or yeah. what was it purely the freedom of confidence? I, it was the feeling of confidence. I knew I was playing great uh, because I won the qualifying on the Monday, you know, uh, and to win uh, on the Monday qualifying, you probably had 75 guys and only three or four spots. So you had to, you had to shoot a low round. I think I shot a sixty-seven or something on a toughish course, and I got my spot. And uh, I played great to win the tournament, and I never looked back. It seemed so, to really kind of kick off for you then after that, because yeah, obviously, and that's why I, 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 you know, if a guy has talent and he's got desire and he's got a heart to, to, to follow through with it, I'm very happy to give young people enough time. Um, to get there, it's not going to happen over, overnight. But once you're working on your on your game and improving all the aspects of your game, uh, that's the key. Yeah, and then so one, once that first that maiden win kind of came for you, the floodgates really seemed to open. Not just when it comes to the European Tour, but but also team golf. You, yeah. you get you get that Ryder Cup call. You get your first Ryder Cup experience. John yeah. Jacobs was your captain. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was when, great. when did when did your turn, attention first turn to potentially making that European team? Uh, well, I think that's how I got hooked on golf. Um, um, when I was a kid, I remember watching on black and white television. I always remember watching Christy O'Connor Senior playing on the Ryder Cup against all of these famous Americans, and. Uh, that really hooked me on the game big time. So I always had a desire to, to, to be a Ryder Cup player. Um, and, you know, I had a good year in 78. And then 79, I won and I was playing with with really good players and against great players. I mean, when I won my first tournament in 79, it was the European match play. Mm. I beat Nick Price in the final. Now, Nick Price became the number one player in the world a few years later. And... I knew Nick Price from playing on the South African circuit and I knew how good he was. I mean, he was an absolutely fantastic player. And to beat him in the final 
I kind of knew I was up there with because everyone was predicting Nick Price is going to be one of the best players, which he became. But the fact that I beat him in the final of a tournament, it was a match play tournament, um, gave me a huge amount of confidence. And my game developed accordingly after that. Like anytime we ever listen to kind of writers, writer cup stuff, like it, it was a, tr is it true? Like, did you feel those nerves when you were teaming oh, off? I the always first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, funny enough, I, I remember mentioning it to Darren Clark years later. Darren came a long time after me, and uh, I was still playing the tour, and he was a great. He still is and was a great player, uh, and he had great confidence in himself. And I always remember saying, Darren. You won't believe the nerves that hit you on the first tee in a Ryder Cup. And he was that poo-pooing me, you know. And that's <laughs> ridiculous, you know. And uh, he he played in Valderrama, I think, was his first. And he came back to me afterwards. He says, geez, I couldn't get over that first tee. He said, <laughs> I was shaking like a leaf. So, uh, yeah, it has that effect, I think, on everybody. Especially if it's your first time. How did you get the phone call that you were going to be on that Ryder Cup team? Yeah, geez, that's a long time ago now. Where, where, what? No, I think I was in. Um, I got, I got picked. You see, I was twelfth man, and uh, and the top nine were exempt, and then they picked three, so I had an outside chance. But I got picked early on. Um, I was in Port Marnock Golf Club. We just finished the Irish Open, and the selection committee were having a meeting after that. And uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Sevi Ballesteros came up and told me because uh, he was the number one player in Europe and as a consequence he was on the selection committee uh, it was John Jacobs uh, Neil Coles, the chairman of the players committee and Sevi, they were the three selectors so I got picked by them from my first Ryder Cup the second one I qualified for myself yeah. but yeah, uh, very exciting times and in fact Sevi played on the first the the team I played in '79 was the first European uh, Ryder Cup. You beat you just beat me to it. I was going to say that was the start of a new era for the Ryder Cup it was. because it was all GB and I beforehand. So now you had people like Sevi in the dressing room. What yes. was that like having having obviously Sevi? Well, he's a magician when it came to to golf. Having yeah. having that kind of a character in in a team room now. What was that dynamic like? Ah, yeah, no, it was great. I mean, you 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 it would rub off you that sort of. Um, aura that he had about him um and uh but also that i think tony jackman was on that team yeah and you know sandy lyle i mean it, it was the start of the big european push that year wasn't it um it happened a few years af after that but you could see the nucleus of these great players coming along um the following Ryder cup i played was in was in um Walton yeah, and I, you know, I mentioned a few there on that team, but then the next team you had Bernard Langer on it, um, Sandy. Um, when 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 I think of it, that there were Mark James was was on it, and oh, there was lots of great players starting to come through at that stage, and you could see their talent, you could see how talented they were. Yeah, there's one funny story which comes from that your your first Ryder Cup, which was. Uh, after it's so obviously the, the USA went on went on to win seventeen eleven, yeah. But when the likes of like Mark James and Ken Brown <laughs> came back to the UK, they got some very hefty fines. Was it Mark James yeah, got fined fifteen hundred yeah. pounds? Ken yeah. Brown a thousand pounds. What did lot. they do? 
Well, look, they were young, they were inexperienced, they were a bit headstrong. Hockey would be the word you'd use. And they didn't really appreciate what was happening. And uh, basically they misbehaved, you know, and it didn't help the team, you know. Sure. There, there's certain functions that we have to do. There's pictures that have to, it's all part of the, um, the Ryder Cup. And they kind of came down in the wrong shoes on, you think they did it on purpose, and then they they didn't they didn't mix well with the team. They 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 isolated themselves a little bit. It's hard to believe now because they're two of the nicest guys you ever met. I think they, they were young then, and they they just behaved very silly. And John Jacobs wasn't a bit happy with it, and um, they didn't appear at some of the functions, saying that they didn't feel well, but. Everybody knew they just didn't want to do any of the um, the hard stuff that had to be done before you actually get to the golf course, like team photographs for the people who are sponsoring, say, the shoes or the clothes. These are all things that the teams have, have to do. Uh, and it's an extremely busy week, both for the captain and the players, trying to get the practice in, do the media, do the photographs. It's a nonstop week. And that's why the captains are very keen now to um, kind of um, take care of the team, you know, and try to get this over as quickly as they can and let the guys practice and get ready for the matches. Because that's what it's all about. It's hard to imagine Ken Brown being a diva like that. This doesn't sound like him. He was a diva then, yeah. You wouldn't believe it. He, he, he was um, kind of introvert. And, and so was Mark. But... That's the fascinating thing. Uh, I, I love Ken on TV now. He's yeah. great. And so is Mark. He's the funniest guy you could meet. It was just, it was, look, it's the impetuosity of youth. They thought they were the most important thing in the world. Uh, and the team wasn't that important. Of course, everyone realizes that changes with age. Like, like everything. You grow experience. I, I wouldn't condemn them for it. <laughs> no, 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 not at all, not at all. So, w- when you come back then to tour after after Ryder Cup, like I said, like I said before, the floodgates opened up. You had two wins in nineteen eighty, another another win then in nineteen eighty one. Was was that just purely you knew you could get across the line? You did get across the line. Yeah, you can do it again, and you just yeah, yeah. do it on repeat. Ab- absolutely, the first time you win is the most exciting, but then immediately you think, well, is that a flash in the pan? No player's happy until they win their second tournament. Now, the first is the most important because that can be the hardest for a lot of people. Hmm. But once you get that out of the way, the next question that enters your mind is, I wonder if that's just my my lucky week, you know? And so until you get the next one under your belt, then you start realizing, yeah, I, I deserve to be here. So, yeah, and that's what happens with most players. Once they get number two, they they, they, they invariably speed on after that. So then, once you get through those three, those three extra wins, kind of under your belts, you get that second Ryder Cup experience, and you, like you said, you'd you'd worked your way into the team, you'd qualified, you're no longer a rookie, you got a lot yeah. more game time. You played in every round of the 1981. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I remember John Jacobs saying to me once, I I made a mistake with you, Des. Afterwards, when we'd finished Ryder Cups, we remained very good friends. And yeah, yeah, you know, you're sitting there having a cup of coffee one morning. He said, Des, I made a mistake with you. I said, what's that, John? He said, I played you too little the first time and too much the second time. (laughs) (laughs) 
I said, yeah, I cannot. Because I remember he played me five times. The second time, I tell you what, by the time Sunday comes, you are absolutely, you are, you are knackered, especially a player. And I don't mind saying this, especially if I was a very good player, but I wasn't Sandy Lyle or I wasn't um, Langer or I wasn't Seve. You know, these were superstars. So they can, they could stroll playing their game at 80% and still win. I was a notch below that and I needed my A game to beat these Americans, you know. So um, the second Ryder Cup, I, I, I got a couple of points playing against, of all people, Hale Irwin and um, Irwin and Ray Floyd, myself and uh, Bernard Gallagher beat them. Now they were they were unbeatable at the time, mm-hmm. and then I I won another match against Bill Rogers and Bruce Litsky with uh, Jose Canizares. So you know they were great points to get. It's very hard to get a point in the Ryder Cup. You know you you can be a member of a team and play great and never get a point. I mean, I, I, I felt sorry for, for uh, Stephen Gallagher up in Scotland a few years back where um, he'd had a bad first day and was beaten badly and he didn't get a game till the singles. And I think he shot six under par in the singles against Phil Mickelson and was beaten. So you you can play great golf and never get a point in the Ryder Cup. And that's not what the captain wants. <laughs> no. And, uh, Des, you, were, uh, you weren't the only Irish man in the team in 81. When no, Eamon, Eamon Darcy was with you. That's right. Yeah. What was it like? What was it like having the, the like having someone from Ireland with you? Did it, did it make yeah, it? It was, great. it was great. Yeah, but you know, when you're on a team, really, if if it wouldn't have mattered, I didn't notice I was the only Irish man on the first team, and it didn't dawn on me there was two in the second. It was nice to have, but you're part of a team. And all the talk all week, get your game in the best shape. They try to do everything they can to help you. You have your coach and everything. All they want you is to come out ready for, ready to win a point. That is the key. And by the time you get there, you're with the team all week. You really get close to them all. You have a great sense of affinity with, with the rest of the guys. We're all on this mission to try and win the Ryder Cup. It's a great, it's a great event. We actually had Eamon on the podcast and he spoke to us about winning the, you know, the, the maiden Ryder Cup over in the States and, and, and how special that was. How special was it for you then kind of moving from, because that was a, the, the couple of Ryder Cup teams that you played on was a, a transition period, we'll say, or like the... It was, yeah. You know, we weren't, we, we were strong, but we weren't strong enough. I don't mind saying that. Um. But the experience was still the same for me as it was for all the others, you know. For sure, and because then, th- that period really kind of galvanized Europe into the, the powerhouse it is. We almost take it for granted how strong and how how tight the bond is between European players. But but yes. the Ryder Cups that you you played on were really pivotal to Eamon and, and his his team winning their first in the US, but then also what we've got today. Like there must be a big yes. sense of pride for you and your team. Ah, it's great now. No, no, the, the 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 teams got stronger and stronger, and we started to win and uh, turned the whole thing around. And uh, of course, the game is a world game now. And but in those days, the, the power was on the the, the, the PGA Tour. <clears throat> but that has changed since. It's a world. It's world. It's a world game now, and it's far better. Big time. And I guess you you would know it nearly as as well as anyone 
how strong Team Europe became when it comes to the Ryder Cup because you were vice captain for some very, very special Ryder Cups. Yes, I was. I was vice captain for Woozy's team at the K Club. And that was then, amazing. That Ryder yeah, Cup was incredible. But, yeah, it was. It was. They're all like that, though, funny enough. I haven't been to a Ryder Cup that didn't feel the same. Um, and uh, to be on a winning side was was great. But, you know, when you looked at the team, God, they were so strong. You kind of believe these guys can't be beaten. And I'm sure the Americans feel the same when they look at their team. But it's a very close contest now. It is. But, I mean, for, for 2006, it was, you know, it must have felt extra special because it was just down the road. It was in the K Club. It was in Ireland. Yeah. There was a lot of Irish players on the team. There were a lot of Irish people in the backroom staff. Like yeah. that must have really felt like a home game. It, it did. It did. It felt like, like a home game. And uh, now we had great players. Then Porrick played and uh, Hall played. Um, I'm missing somebody. Darren played. Yeah. Darren did yeah. play. Yeah. Yeah. It, w- it was brilliant. Of course, it was a sad time. He had lost his wife. Yeah. A short previous um but yeah no it was a, it was a momentous occasion and it was pulled off beautifully at the k club so there's just look on on your role as a vice captain do you think it helped that one year when you were on you were a pick second year you you, you made you you qualified yourself do you think that gave you a lot of experience from a from a personally when you became then the vice captain yeah i think so um you know, and 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 I think the captains know. You know, we we'd be speaking about it, and uh, you know, it's important what the captain says early in the week. Um, I was always against. Back in the day, there was one or two teams that they didn't play players till the Sunday, or maybe they had a twelve-man team and they felt they had only eight strong players, as happened one year, and they didn't play the others. And then on the Sunday, every one of them lost. You know, you have to give your team confidence. So I'm delighted now that they realized that. And, um, you know, the first thing the captain will say at, at his meeting, like, everybody's going to play. This is what they normally do now. Everybody's going to play in the first two days. Everybody. Whereas some years back, they held players. I mean, I don't want to be mentioning names, but one captain said to a player on the flight to America, um, I wasn't involved on the team, but I was told afterwards. He turned to one of the players and says, look, you won't be playing till Sunday. I mean, that must have been devastating to that player to be told that. Having he made the team, he wasn't picked. He actually played himself onto that team. And then to be told before they even hit the site. So that sort of message was all negative and all wrong. And it was, as a consequence, we weren't doing as well as we should be. You know, the... um, the captains of recent times now are are smart, smarter. They they understand the emotional side, the psychological side of the game. You must boost your players up and make them believe they're even better than they are. And uh, even if you're going to lose the lose the game, it's important that everybody is blooded early on because the tension is massive, and the pressure on the players is massive. Uh, um, so. I think that's what, and of course, the, the good side of it now, the European players are very strong. So there's no need for that any, anymore. But it's important to get that message across early on. It's a 12-man team. You're not going to win the Ryder Cup with eight players because by the time Sunday comes, if you're playing the same guys, um, you know, the stress and the thing builds up 
from the minute you hit there, but practice runs and all the media and all the TV, you know, it keeps building. And all you want to do is get out in that tee. So once they get out the first and second day, whether they win or not, they're they're ready for their next match. That's the point I'm making. Whereas if you're if you're sitting them on the side, um, it's 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 not a good idea. I have a sneaky suspicion. I know which which player you're you're talking about. I I think I might have heard that that story as well. But it's a horrible story. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a it's a very unfair story considering that player's actual Ryder Cup record as well. Yes. Um, you then got got asked to be uh, vice captain in twenty fourteen for for McGinley and and for his his team over in Glen Eagles. Yes, you've got a very tight relationship with with Paul. You you guys are quite quite good friends. Yeah, you, you you ended up beating him actually in in one European Tour tournament, and and you've worked in his backroom backroom staff in the Ryder Cup. How did yeah. uh, Paul get in touch with you? Yeah. Um... Well, well, I, if I'm not mistaken, I was I might have been the first or second guy he asked. I know Sam Torrance and I were yeah. his two first choices, but I was heavily involved with that team and the build up to it with Paul because you might remember this, but Sam's dad wasn't well, Bob, and he was quite ill, and Sam wasn't able to get as involved as he might have liked to, so. Paul was using me as the sounding board for a lot of the build-up before he decided on his next few um, assistants. They'd normally pick too early on so they can work with them as a build-up to, to the event. And then when it's closer to the event, they pick sort of current players that have just missed or they know are going to miss hmm. uh, as, because then it creates better camaraderie within the team because the vice captains are guys they're playing with on a regular basis. So I, I had a big involvement with Paul's team. And Paul, as you know, was an amazing captain. Came up with all sorts of different um, surprises um, um, in his build-up. And he's created almost a template for future captains. Um, Paul is a bright guy. We became friends when he came on tour. I knew him. We were both members of County Loud Golf Club back in the day, and I knew his dad. And uh, yeah, when Paul came on tour, we used to spend a lot of time together. I think you're almost selling it short. I think um, a few journalists have described your relationship as you were almost a father figure to him, and you were a mentor. I think is what he was quoted as calling you. How, how close were you actually, and are you? Yes, you know, we're very good friends. We're very good friends. I actually had Paul Stone staying with me two weekends ago for the uh, for the East of Ireland, uh, Killian. And um, Paul was down twice that week, um, making sure he was he was comfortable and doing the right things. No, we, we, we go back that far and we've remained good, good friends. I mean, uh, he doesn't it doesn't surprise me how well Paul has done and is doing. He's a very bright young man. He was always asking questions when he came on tour first. He was always looking for the the angles that would improve his game, and uh, that's the type of guy he is. So, so you were you weren't you were sorry you weren't surprised when Paul decided was so tactical about his captaincy and the all the little nuances and stuff. Were you just this is just classic McGinley, or were you did anything he was doing surprise you? No, this is classic McGinley. I mean, he always, he was always that way. He went into the minutia of the reasons why this works and that doesn't work. And, you know, that's the type of person he is. And um, 
uh, I think he got that from a very early age from he was in college in the States and then he worked. Uh, I think he, he, he hadn't decided to turn pro when he came back from college. And I'm nearly sure he worked in the EU for a while as some sort of a statistician. You can check that out with him. He did, yeah. He did, yeah. yeah so, he hated it, apparently. It was all, the numbers were great, but the job was awful. Yeah, that's right. And 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 then he, he really was very keen on hurling and he got injured. So he started to play more and more golf. And that's how it happened. But he always had that very inquisitive approach to everything he did. And uh, this is how he handled his captaincy of the Ryder Cup. And everybody was blown away by how smart, how he never left any any stone unturned. He knew exactly how to treat different players. He checked our personalities out. He he did all that. And then he had all the stats guys working for him, which was a whole new concept. And uh, it worked out very well. And I think he's left a, a good solid mark for the people following. So I guess one thing that I guess you and Paul also have in common is Paul uh, hosted the last couple of the iterations of the Irish Legends Tour events up in Donegal. You're taking over those duties this year at Seapoint. Yeah. How has life been on the on the Legends Tour? Have you played many many events on it? Well, well, I did. I retired forty four years ago, um, and um, I played after the European Tour. I went and played the Champions Tour for six years. And then I came back and finished off my career on the European Senior Tour, which is now the Legends Tour. And um, just the five wins there. Yeah, five. five <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but it was, I won them kind of half playing America and half over here. And then when I came back, I think I won one or two. Um, but I'd spent six years in, in the States playing the Champions Tour. So I kind of knew what was going on. And uh, yeah, you know, it, uh, it was great. My, I enjoyed my career immensely. And um, when Paul t took it on, I had no involvement in, in Donegal. He just felt if it comes over here and with the new situation in Seapoint, he, he asked me, I think it would suit you there. So I was happy to get involved. What's life like or what was life like on the, the Champions Tour and the European Champions Tour compared to the, we'll call it the main European Tour? Less competitive, more camaraderie? No, the competition is still it's still the same, but it's not, you know, it's not the main tour. Because on the, on the uh, senior tour, the regular tournament is only 54 holes. Hmm. Um, and there is more... Um, work to be done on the sidelines because there's a bigger involvement with uh, with corporate um america as such on the champions tour there's you know there's um they've they've player meetings and uh, what's the name of the but they have the pro-am party in america every every um wednesday mm. so you're not going to a function where you're meeting all the amateurs that you're going to play with and there's a lot more on that side. Um, you couldn't do it on the main tour because it's all too serious, you know, on careers and all that. So I think the, um, the, the, the sponsoring companies get a lot of value out of the senior tour because the guys are a little more mellowed and all that. And they're happy to do the extra bit of mile to, to help the tournaments be a success uh, and uh, to generate funds for charities. There's an awful lot of charity work involved in professional golf 
which is marvellous. I love the game to bits. And that's one of the things that has developed over the years. There's nearly a charity element to every event. Even the one at Sea Point, the, the local Loudmead Down Syndrome Society are going to get a, a kickback from the one here next week. So uh, we're hoping we can raise as much and, 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 and give them a gift. Um, so that's the good thing about golf. But yeah, it's different. You're seniors, you're past your main career, but you're still very competitive. I mean, these guys are still working out in the gym, still practicing every day, and they play a very high standard of golf. Oh, yeah. I, I was about to say, like, you probably, once you're on the senior tour, you know the guys a lot more. So it nearly turns to be, I do not want to lose to my friends with this well, coming on. Well, well, that'll always be the case. You never want to lose. Um, you always want to win. It, that's the, the competition that'll always be there because you were bred into it for so long on the main tour um, that there's great comp competition, but there is a friendlier air about the whole thing. It's but like Johnny just sent me a video uh, the other night of you playing uh, a game with Roddy Carr and uh, in Seapoint. And I was just like, the I know how competitive Roddy gets. I'd say it was killing him having to hand over the 20 year old Tia on the 18th. I was, I, I was only stringing him along. I was only stringing him along. <laughs> I was waiting for the moment to make my move. Your relationship with Seapoint in particular is is unique you've obviously you were one of the original designers of the golf course you lived just up the road from it yes um, how did that come about where you came were first approached to design the course yeah well yeah that's exactly right um, um a bunch of local business guys who who used to come down here for summer holidays and they thought the area could do it a new golf course so they bunched in together and um, the guy who owned the land was involved and uh, then they approached myself and Declan Brannigan because we were we'd done a number of courses around the country, and uh, they said, "Look, we'd love you to do ours." And that's how it happened. And that's back in the early nineties. And um, yeah, we got involved. It was a, it was a, a vegetable area with and a mix of a vegetable farm and cattle. I remember it in squares and uh, flat land. The dunes are over close to the sea. And yeah, so we took it upon ourselves to get in and build a golf course. Um, and yeah, it's worked out very well. We yeah. were very, um, yeah, it's a decent golf course. I mean, I know it's not the, you know, I'm not going to say this is the best links. It's not, but it's a very challenging course. And I always got a, a, a great bit of confidence from the fact that back in, in the 90s and even after that, we used to run Lynx Golfing Society outings on it. And Pori Harrington kept coming down on a regular basis. And I said to him once, because he was a big player on tour, and this was winter golf in Ireland. I said, Pori, you're great to keep coming down. Oh, he said, Des, if I can come down here and play off the tips and break 70, I know my game's in great shape. And uh, I thought, well, we must have done a good job if Pori Harrington comes down here to sharpen his game up so yeah that's that's a comment i i never forgot mm. it, it is a super course it is it's a super venue so for people that are going to be looking to to watch some high quality golf what can they expect and who can they expect to see this coming week well you've got you've you you've got eight i think there's 10 past Ryder cup players there's three major champions um ian Wosnam, 
um, Paul Laurie and uh, Michael Campbell. They're they're all one um, majors. Um, Ian Wasnam was the number one player in the world at one stage. Um, so I mean, just a great bunch of lads, and the, the the invites went to three three Irishmen. They had four invites: David Higgins, Gary Murphy, who's who's local, just played his first um, Legends Tour event in Austria two or three weeks ago, and finished seventh. So there's going to be a great interest in watching Gary, and Philip Walton, a Ryder Cup hero. He's oh, got yeah. one invite. So and uh, a guy called DJ Russell. So I mean. The standard of player is very high, um, and anything like the, the people who who are going to play in the celebrity pro am on the Thursday is wild. I mean, you've Joe Canning, you've um, Shay Given, um, James Nesbitt, the actor, Daniel O'Donnell, Teddy Sheringham. You might have heard of him. Ah, uh, yeah, a few of those names are familiar. We we we've had a pretty good night out with James Nesbitt there at the Irish Open last year, and well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to do round two now next week. Oh dear, you better you better catch us <laughs> training. But I mean, these are great names, uh, and uh, and many more. I mean, there's 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 some very famous cricketers. Not everyone's in into into cricket, but uh, there was a past captain of the English team, Strauss, I think it is. Yeah, Andrew Strauss is playing. So. You know, um, it's absolutely fantastic, really. And Damon Hill, he he wow. he was a pretty good driver in in his day. So they're they're names that uh, we're only used to seeing on television. Yeah, that'll be it'll be it's sure to be a really 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 good event. Um, I think one last question from from my side is um, what what what's the one item or the one day or the one moment that you're probably most looking forward to, Des? Wow, that's a good question. Uh, well, I suppose I'm I'm hoping to see a really good winner. I think it'll take a really good player to win on this golf course. Um, it's it's a proper challenge, and the guy who wins will have to play some great golf. So I suppose uh, I'm going to be at the presentation on the Sunday. I'm very interested to see who, who's going to win this. Um, but we're here to welcome ev everybody, and we want them to have a great week. That's super. Listen, Des, thank you so much. We loved going down memory lane with you a little bit. We might have a catch-up again closer to the Ryder Cup. We'd love to just pick your brains on what team will be picked and how you, how you think it's going to play. And um, thank you very much. We'll see you during during the week at the Legends event. And just before you go, I hope Shane Lowry or Rory McIlroy or Seamus Power win the US Open this week. That's we, can what get, we can get into that. Do, do, you, do, you think they'll, do you think they'll do it, do you? Well, look, they're all great players. It all depends on, on the week. If you find your form and you hold the putts, although it's a very, very tough tournament to win. And we have a player who's won it a number of years ago in Michael Campbell playing for us next week. Yeah, we'll be sure to check in with him as well. Des, yeah. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you, Johnny and Michael. On the tee, Jack Nicholas. This is the minute the millions around the world have waited for. We will allow you to enjoy all of this. They are dancing in the pubs of Dublin. Harrington with an ace. And we have a shining star at sunset. Rory continues his run to greatness. The return to glory.